Hello and welcome to ASTCT Talks, the official podcast of the American Society for Transplantation and Cellular Therapy. We chat with industry leaders from all areas of the blood and marrow transplantation and cellular therapy field, including doctors, physician assistants, pharmacists, nurses, administrators, social workers, and more. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Today, we are talking about your work with bispecific T-cell engagers. And first of all, you know, my first question is you, you're a specialist when it comes to, or one of your areas of interest, I should say, is phase one trials. And you've done a lot of really interesting phase one trials specifically about how bispecifics affect children. Can you tell us about that and, and what you guys found? Sure. So the, the early work with the first bispecific T-cell engager to, I think, really reach common, you know, widespread use was lenitumumab, which is a CD19-directed bispecific. And that clinical trial came to pediatrics relatively quickly in the evolution of clinical trials. There has been a wide range of really the time required for people being comfortable putting a brand new drug into children. Uh, for appropriate reasons. And that has ranged somewhere between two years and 20 years over the course of time. And so what's really remarkable is that because ALL was an obvious target for this, and ALL is the most common malignancy in children, the inventors of this were, I think, very proactive in ensuring that this drug, this bispecific, was available to children quite quickly in its development cycle. So from the time that the adult phase one protocols and treatments were really launching, there were early children that were being treated much sooner than with most new drugs and in drug development. So I think that was a real positive and it's a credit to the fact that people were you know, willing to look at this for patients with highly refractory ALM. That's, um, that's pretty incredible. I mean, that's a notable thing is you typically will see a lot of phase one drug trials they usually have to kind of cycle through adults first before they go into the pediatric sphere unless they're specific to pediatrics. Is that correct? That is correct. And there, you know, there are good reasons for, you know, trying to understand safety and tolerability and all those other things. Much easier to do that in an adult who can consent for herself or himself than a child who at best has a family that's providing all of the consent discussions and documents and have to, you know, whether or not this is ethical decisions. So to be able to do that relatively quickly because this drug had so much promise, I think was very exciting and really launched a whole generation of being able to think differently about how we introduce new drugs to children, which has really been the other focus of my, a lot of my recent career work is bringing the best drugs to children, hopefully quickly and as soon as is feasible, as long as we know that it's as safe as we can predict to do. Right. And so for this particular trial with bispecifics, there's been research that shows how this affects adults. There's been, been quite a bit of research on that. This was kind of the first one to really look more in depth about how that was interacting with pediatric patients. What were you guys seeing in terms of what was going on with your patients after they received bispecifics? Yeah, so I think what was most remarkable in the blenitumumab was introduced globally very quickly, which is also really exciting that we have the capacity to do international clinical trials. 
to really look at the most promising drugs for difficult to treat diseases. And so when blinitumumab was evaluated, it had been evaluated in a very small number of children in Tübingen, Germany. Dr. Rupert Gretner was one of the first physicians, he was a bone marrow transplanter actually, one of the first physicians to treat children with ALL with this compound. And based on you know, really single case kinds of data, the trial was developed to be an international phase one, two clinical trial very quickly. And what we've observed in pediatrics overall is that for the most part, with an understanding of the mechanism of any drug, we can fairly well predict what's going to happen in children based on adult data. Not always, but for the most part, children actually tolerate drugs better than their adult counterparts, probably for a variety of reasons. Right. And that was certainly observed in the early days of lenitumumab as well, um, that the both the response, the anti-leukemic response, and the toxicity were very consistent between adults and children. Dr. Max Topp, also in Germany, and Nicola Gutt were two physicians who had led a lot of the glenitumumab adult clinical trials. And being able to have you know, really direct conversations with them, really direct interactions with them. And then my counterpart in the European Union was a physician named Aaron von Stackelberg, and so Aaron and I were the two global leads on the pediatric trial, but we had a lot of great colleagues that were helping pave the way for us and understanding the way to do this. And I would say overall that there was a very strong champion. There was a small biotech company in Germany that developed this drug or this, this bite called Micromet. And Micromet was sold to Amgen, I think really specifically for the acquisition of Lunatumimab because it was such a promising company. Right. And the, that physician was a gentleman named Gerhard Zugmeier. Gerhard really, I give a, an enormous amount of credit for essentially devoting his life to making sure that this drug, which seemed very promising early on, was investigated appropriately in the right patient population and really gave access to children with this compound very early on. And they say the rest is history. This has really revolutionized how we think about treatment of uh, relapsed and refractory ALL in children. And the exciting thing is that it has moved in a very short period of time, has moved forward to frontline therapy in the new generation of clinical trials for um, uh, ALL. Yeah, it's been, it's been pretty interesting to look at how bispecifics in general have really become this new age drug of the future because they are so different than a lot of the things that have come before them. And it's been, it's been really encouraging that, that these new types of medicine are emerging to, that, that, that have these really profound impacts, especially on children, because there's so much we don't know about children with these types of blood or cellular problems. Yeah, I think a couple things, really. It's certainly challenging to think about how to do that, but also really exciting. And I think that the risk-benefit balance has to come from how are we doing with these patients right now? What is their likelihood of doing well? What are their risks? What are the toxicities that we need to be concerned about? And I think we definitely are concerned about toxicities of putting a drug into children too quickly before they fully understand it. But at the same time, the mechanism of action of bispecifics it is one that's very exciting and it really is age agnostic. And in fact, some people would suggest that they might be even more effective 
in younger patients because the immune response is really the key to getting an effective anti-tumor response. So uh, younger children who don't have waning immunity as we get older and also don't have other cumulative organ system toxicities in many ways are kind of the ideal candidates. And the uptake, I think, of bispecifics really parallels and, and probably precedes, to be honest, the enthusiasm about immunotherapy and cancer overall. Right. Um, the other advantage, I think, to bispecifics is that you know, they're really off-the-shelf products, so they can be delivered without any lag time and wait time and manufacturing time. This is something that is you know, widely available, essentially. And so that's also very promising for patients with very refractory disease or disease that can't wait. You know, when you talk about cellular therapy constructs, many of those have to be manufactured. So unless it's a product that's off the shelf, that actually eliminates that possibility for some patients. And with a bispecific, certainly that's a promising and exciting availability, I guess. To, yeah. to think about so that you, you know, you can really treat a patient very quickly with a very specific therapy that in a sense um, doesn't cause the widespread kind of off-target or, or non-target effects that many chemotherapy drugs use. And I think everybody would be super excited to think that we could go forward with either less chemotherapy or in some cases no chemotherapy for at least a component of the um, patients that we take care of. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, especially when it comes to like the measuring of toxicities. You know, the, these drugs have, well, we're still kind of figuring out what are things like bi-specific or CAR-Ts, like what are those toxicities and how do we measure them? But like you said, that there's some that have been found, well, hey, these actually have a lot less implications for children because their immuno, their just natural immune systems are a little bit different than adults. What have you guys found in your research specific to the toxicities of biospecifics and how they affect children? Yeah, so the, the toxicity for um, children with biospecifics really it mirrors and is essentially identical to that in adults, with the exception that they might tolerate some of the toxicities a little bit better, particularly the cardiovascular collapse that can be seen with significant cytokine release syndrome. You know, I think early on when patients were being treated with very high disease burden, those patients were much more at risk for significant cytokine release syndrome that included uh, hypotension, uh, the need for pressor support, and significant kind of resuscitation in that fluid status category. So children in general have less underlying cardiac disease, and so they are probably more likely to tolerate a significant insult that way. We've also learned that patients have a best response if they have a lower disease burden overall. So we're sort of pre-treating some patients to reduce their leukemia burden or treating them at a state of, you know, really minimal or very low levels of disease. So they're less likely to have those toxicities. The other thing that's interesting is that one of the side effects of most bispecifics um, that have been generated to date um, include a, unusual neurotoxicities or a range of neurotoxicities. And the scales for evaluating neurotoxicity have been developed in adults. And if you can imagine that one of the toxicities that we've noticed certainly with lenitumumab and with other bispecifics has been neurotoxicity, it's very difficult for a toddler, for instance, to describe neurologic changes. It's hard for them to articulate that. 
the things that we do to assess neurotoxicity in adults are very different. We can't ask them to provide a handwriting sample if they don't know how to write their name, right? So we had to develop some slightly novel approaches to how we assess neurotoxicity in children based on their age and their developmental stages. It's very easy. One of the, you know, we laugh a lot. Actually, one of the toxicities noted in adults has been mood changes or mood swings. And one of the moms I took, you know, I took care of her daughter and the mom said, well, how will I know she's moody all the time? <laughs> and, you know, those kinds of, so, it, you know, it really is an opportunity to think um, more creatively and more open-mindedly about how we assess side effects and toxicities. Early on, we had to develop a whole new way of assessing um, neurologic function uh, for children who have less, you know, skills maybe. They, they aren't able to write their names or they can't articulate the side effects that they're feeling. Some kids are even, you know, not very verbal. And so to rely on neurotoxicity assessments that require them to answer questions is not really appropriate. So it's allowed us to think more creatively about how we assess both drug delivery in younger children, as well as how we you know, try to establish what are the objective measures of side effects and toxicity so that we're really looking at those very carefully. And what were, I mean, I'm curious, what were some of the ways that, like you said, that that you have to kind of think outside the box to measure those because if like a child can't write or if you've got a toddler and they're terrible twos, it's really hard to tell when they're just mad because they're two or, you know, they're possibly experiencing sort of side effects. So what were some of those systems that you guys had implemented? Sure. Yeah. So we did, um, we started with simple things like, and again, depending on age and what their pre-disease um, level of function was. Um, with age, we've, you know, even a, a pretty small toddler can sometimes copy shapes. So it might have been as simple as somebody drawing a triangle or a circle to try to assess tremors in the hands and muscul you know, fine motor coordination and musculoskeletal coordination. We tried to get them to repeat the same thing or have their parents sing a song with them, for instance, to assess their verbal capacity. If it's a, like a nursery rhyme, something really simple that it might be a song that they sing every day at bath time or some sort of routine thing that they have a habit of in the house and we try to get them to repeat those things in the medical setting. Some of it is pediatrics in general, we play a lot of games with kids to assess both their physical and cognitive skills. And so some of it is simple play. Can you catch a ball that is being tossed? Are they able to transfer things from one hand to the other? Can they play peekaboo? Can they play hide and seek? What are their motor skills doing? Are they steady on their feet? Are they able to hop on one foot? Is that different from what they were able to do before? Those kinds of things. So you, you know, a neuro, an adult neurologic exam is often pretty dry and, and not very interesting in terms of creative play. And a pediatric neuro exam has to incorporate play and games and word puzzles and all kinds of things to assess the same neurologic capacity that you just look at in a different way. I think that's really fascinating, just like how you have to think out of the box to segment this particular patient population. And it's so important that, you know, bridging that communication gap, because that's how it gets you your best data. And also it helps you understand what your patients are going through as well. Yep. Can you kind of talk through a little bit about What's the next step? You know, now that we have this information about some of the toxicities when it comes to bispecifics and some of the outcomes when it comes to bispecifics, what are the questions that we still have to answer? And then what is some up and coming research that we should really be looking out for? 
Uh, well, I think there, you know, there are a variety of things. So first of all, that you know, that the antigen targets are getting more interesting. So you know, I think early on, CD19 was a fantastic target because it's essentially expressed in all kids with ALS. The development of antigen-targeted bites for acute myeloid leukemia for AMO has been slower, and that is a little bit target-specific and it's a little bit disease-specific, uh, and it's a little bit individually. You know, what is the bone marrow microenvironment doing? What, how far back into the stem cell ontogeny can you go without poisoning bone marrow stem cells permanently? What does that look like? Can you turn it off and on? So I think the development of targets to different antigens is really important. The other thing that we're seeing and have seen really since the early days of single antigen targeted bites, or you know, bispecific is one antigen on the leukemia cell or on the tumor cell, and one antigen on the patient's immune cells, in, in most cases to be positive T cells. But we know that if you put selective pressure on a particular leukemic clone by killing only the CD19 positive cells, for instance, those cells can develop essentially resistance or they can evade that target and develop other um, leukemia phenotypes, for instance. Um, they can switch completely from ALL to AML as an example. And so one of the questions is, can you target multiple antigens to prevent that antigen resistance or antigen escape, if you want to think about it that way? And so there are things called trites or tri-specific, which would be perhaps two leukemia antigens to one immune cell antigen. People are looking at um, different kinds of cells, so not just T cells, but can you look at natural killer cells, for instance? People are looking at other kinds of um, engagers, um, multi-specific antigens, for instance. Um, so people are getting really cute with the names because bite is such a great thing to take you know, <laughs> a chance with. So people can look at trites or quites or smites and all kinds of other things. That has really developed, I think, a you know whole realm of what is the biology that we want to take advantage of. So looking at different antigens, different constructs, different half-lives of these of these products. So can you turn this off and Linitumumab, for instance, has a very short half-life, so that is both an advantage and disadvantage. If you have a lot of toxicity, you can turn it off, and the toxicity will ameliorate quite quickly. Right. Uh, if you have something with a very long half-life, it's a lot more convenient for the patient. And does somebody have to be connected to a continuous IV infusion, or can they get one dose every week or every two weeks? And how can we deliver those in a more patient-friendly way, potentially, is another capacity. One of the questions is, can we deliver these into the central nervous system to eliminate central nervous system leukemia? And people are trying to develop um, bites and, and other constructs for solid tumors. So far, it appears that these are extremely effective for liquid tumors and right. potentially less effective for solid tumors. So how can we make them more effective and potentially get at um, diseases that are so far have not benefited from the advances that we've made with bispecifics in leukemia. I, it's just, it's just so incredible to me when you think about how these bispecifics or, you know, like you said, these tri-specifics or multi-specifics, how they work and, and how they can really possibly change the way we look at um, cellular transplantation and possibly, like you said, solid tumors and other types of cancers. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, I think it is really exciting. And I think the other thing that is, that we're learning more about is how to sandwich these agents in between other therapies. What is the role of using a bispecific as a 
way to reduce disease burden prior to stem cell transplant or more traditional stem cell transplant? Right. Um, what is the relationship between bites and CAR T cells? Can you combine bites with other agents safely and can you make those, all of the you know, combination of agents more effective? So what is the role of delivering bites after transplant for, potentially for um, residual disease? All of these things are being investigated and really great thought going into it, but I think we're really still in the infancy of how to use these agents fast. I would love to see a day where patients um, would get really a small amount of chemotherapy at best and, or at worst, um, and then move into you know, other immunotherapy strategies. We may be able to save a lot of toxicity, a lot of late effects and long-term side effects by being able to, able to substitute um, these kinds of technologies for some of the more traditional cytotoxic therapies that we know are effective, but also cause significant compromise to patients for both short and long-term. Right. And that'll be especially important for children because these, you know, the, some of the long-term effects for, for children are often, I don't want to say more detrimental because, you know, these, these are, these effects are nothing to, to snuff at, but, you know, th these children that survive, they can have these really lifelong effects that impact their overall health for, for years and years and years, you know? The, the example I give is that, you know, the average child diagnosed with ALL is school age. It's in the first decade of life. The majority of kids are, you know, di diagnosed between, you know, kind of ages three and seven or eight for the most part. And the reality of it is if you have a three-year-old who is cured of their leukemia, our expectation is that they will go on to lead a, a normal lifespan, which in the United States means they're going to be alive for 70 or 75 more years and right. with whatever side effects our therapy induces for them. And so the sense of responsibility, um, I think for, for us is, you know, almost overwhelming um, in how we think about, you know, what we are in fact sentencing those children to in terms of their long-term life. You know, we, we want them to have great outcomes and we want them to go on to be productive, happy, healthy adults. But decisions that we make about therapy very early in childhood literally have, have decades long, half a century worth of you know, outcome for them. And while any parent would take the chance to have their patient's experience be one of survival and a positive one, it's our obligation to make sure that we are always thinking about what that long-term effect is. You have right. to survive to have long-term side effects. Um, but at the same time, you know, that obligation um, for us to really think about what those long-term implications is, is just growing as we have more and more survivors. Yeah. And if you can, I mean, and honestly, if you have the therapies available to you that show very little toxicity, like you said, or, um, you know, have these abilities like to use less chemotherapy or some of these less invasive procedures, you know, these, that, that could be, you know, maybe in 20 years when a child gets ALL, they'll just, you know, be able to be on a treatment of some bites or some other types of cellular therapies and then just be absolutely fine and it won't even be a big deal. I mean, wouldn't that be a great world to live in? Well, and I think the other, yeah, that, that's exactly the goal. And I think the other part of that is as we, as our technology gets better for diagnostics, as we can measure um, malignant clones more effectively and follow them over the course of somebody's disease, um, we're likely going to identify increasing numbers of populations that either need more or less therapy based on those diagnostics, the genomic and molecular diagnostics. And as we do that, we are going to be much more 
able to allocate and stratify patients to specific therapies based on their risk. So it is entirely possible that we will identify some patients who get a course of uh, you know, bite therapy plus you know, three months of some other therapy and they don't, maybe they don't need anything else. Wouldn't that be fantastic if we could get to that point? And so I think those are the kinds of questions that we need to keep asking. Well, that's fantastic. I, like I said, I, I'm, I'm always encouraged when I see research like this, it's just finding good outcomes, you know, or encouraging outcomes that these new emerging therapies can work. And who knows, in 20 years, maybe we'll be on the podcast again talking about how it's all, how it's totally a different landscape thanks to these emerging medicines. Absolutely. I think that, you know, that's what we all hope for. We, I think, um, you know, for all of us in the field, we would love to be unemployed someday. <laughs> um, and we have a we have a bit of work to do to get there, but you know that would be an extraordinary advancement. And, and I think it also speaks to the fact that we really need to have thoughtfully designed clinical trials to investigate all of this. Um, we need to share our data. We need to be open about our failures and our successes, so that not only do we know what to do in the future, but we know what not to do. And so that you know maybe a minor plea that people always consider that as we think about how to go into you know, really designing good clinical trials and having the confidence in the data that are collected so that we're really thoughtful about sharing that information, making sure that we cross assumptions off our list so that we don't make any assumptions about, you know, patients who could or couldn't benefit, but we have a measured and um, really objective way of looking at that so that we can make the best progress we can for our patients. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And um, we're really thankful that we've got researchers out you. Uh, we have researchers out there like you who are you know, looking into these, these really important questions. Well, it's, um, it's a pleasure. Thanks. It's an honor to be able to participate in this and, and uh, you know, really work with so many amazing people um, across the globe to, to try to just be better every day. Uh, I think that we can continue to have that as our goal as we prioritize solving bad diseases in good patients, and we need to keep making sure that we know what we're doing. And so I, I appreciate the chance to talk with you. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of ASTCT Talks. Never miss an episode. Subscribe and provide reviews wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about ASTCT, find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or visit ASTCT.org.